Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I'm David Kippen, the founder of Libro Schmibros, Skylight's cutthroat competition across town in Boyle Heights. Um, and I'm really glad to see you because, uh, because Skylight made me the improbable offer a little while ago of introducing the odd reading. And, uh, and I was thrilled and looked over the list of upcoming releases. And when I saw that Attica had a book coming out, I was quite excited and said, please, me, me, let me introduce her. Um, I, uh, that can sometimes be risky, because if you, if you take on a reviewing or an introducing or a panel moderating assignment, and then you read the book, sometimes you regret it. Um, but I, I have a habit. Uh, back when I was a book critic, I would um, put post-its next to sentences in a book I thought were really good. And as you can see from my copy of, of The Cutting Season, I'm not terribly, uh, not terribly disappointed that I, uh, I did, in fact, volunteer for this gig. Before we get started, I just want to say that um, you are all heartily encouraged to come back here on Friday, September the 28th, which is this very Friday, four days from now. You can stay until then, but if you leave tonight, come back, um, where, uh, because uh, the USC Master of Professional Writing program will be having an evening uh, to show off uh, some of its very best students. Um, Dinah Lenny is their teacher, and I happen to know she's a very good one, so she wouldn't inflict them on you unless they were very, very good. Um, if you would come to here at Attica Lock several years ago, you would be glad you had heard her before the stampede started and she started getting great reviews in the LA Times and elsewhere. Similarly, show up on Friday and you might have the same experience. Also, the very next night, Saturday, September the 29th, um, the Friday program being 7.30, um, on the 29th, it's a matinee. It's, 10, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, appropriately, because Marla Frazee is a Caldecott-winning um, illustrator of children's books, and she's got a new book called Boot and Shoe, and you should all come back for that. Um, 
So we're about to get started. After the reading, there will be a signing right here. I will station myself at the back door and make sure nobody leaves without picking up a copy of the book. It is a new hardcover book. I realize that can be somewhat expensive, so your next best thing is to pick up a copy of Attica's first book, Blackwater Rising, which is also terrific. So I'm going to get out of the way and uh, yield the microphone to Attica Locke. Thank you, guys. Um, uh, that might be too close. Skylight has an incredibly special place in my heart um, for several reasons. One, it was in the year probably 2003 that I came into this bookstore one day without any goal that I knew of and I started opening novels and I would read the first page, put it back, read a first page, put it back. And by the time I left, I thought, I probably could write a book. And I vividly remember standing over there having, having that feeling. Um, the second reason that it's so special to me is that um, years ago, my husband, my sister, my brother-in-law, we lived on Kenmore, and we had the top two apartments in an old building from the 40s, and um, we used to walk here. Um, so uh, tonight is for Saro. So... Um, in 2004, I went to a wedding in um, New or outside of New Orleans. There's a place called the Oak Alley Plantation. And I knew that the wedding was at a plantation because I'd seen the invitation. But because I'm from the South, I just assumed that meant there were going to be a lot of columns everywhere. I thought it was going to be like a style. I don't know. I thought it was going to be decorated like a plantation. I didn't really understand that I was going to a working plantation or what had been a working plantation. So I had been partying in New Orleans, and then we all got on a chartered bus to ride out. And you ride through basically rural Louisiana poverty until these incredible columns shoot up out of nowhere along the Mississippi. And I, I took my breath away. Uh, I felt the incredible beauty of the place, but also a kind of shame that I could even see the beauty that I was, maybe I wasn't supposed to think of it that way. Um, and by the time we all got off the bus, I was crying. And I was just fascinated by the idea of using these historical spaces this way. Um, so I conceived of this story about a woman, um, a black woman who is the general manager of one of these plantations in 2009, running the staff, um, putting people's weddings together and their t school tours. And we meet her on a morning when she makes a kind of grim discovery. For the, uh, I've let some parents know that there's some adult content. Um, I have my child here, so it's not crazy. But there are some illusions. I don't know that I'm the best. <laughs> None of you want to follow my example. But, um, but there are some illusions to violence, but it's not. And I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning and then a, a smaller piece from later, later in the story. So this is Ascension Parish, 2009. It was during the Thompson Delacroix wedding, Karen's first week on the job, that a cottonmouth, measuring the length of a Cadillac, fell some 20 feet from a live oak on the front lawn, landing like a coil of rope in the lap of the bride's future mother-in-law. It only briefly stopped the ceremony, this being Louisiana after all. Within minutes, an off-duty sheriff's deputy on the groom's side found a 12-gauge in the groundkeeper's shed and shot the thing dead. And after one of the cater waiters was kind enough to hose down the grass, the bride and groom moved on to their vows, staying on schedule for a planned kiss at sunset, the mighty Mississippi blowing a breeze through the line of stately hundred-year-old trees. 
The uninvited guests certainly made for a lively dinner conversation at the reception in the main hall. And by the time servers made their fourth round with bottles of imported champagne, several men, including prim little Father Hallowell, were lining up to have their pictures taken with the Viper before somebody from parish services finally came to haul the carcass away. Still, Karen took it as a sign, a reminder really that Bellevue, its beauty, was not to be trusted. That beneath its loamy topsoil, the manicured grounds and gardens, two centuries of breathtaking wealth and spectacle, lay a land both black and bitter, soft to the touch but pressing in its power. She should have known that one day it would spit out what it no longer had use for, the secrets it would no longer keep. The plantation proper sat on 18 acres, bordered to the north by the river and to the east by the raw, unincorporated landscape of Ascension Parish. To walk it from the library in the northwest corner to the gift shop and then over to the main house past the stone kitchen and the rose garden, the cottages Manette and Leroy, the old schoolhouse and the quarters took nearly an hour. Karen had learned to start her days early while it was quiet, heading out before sunlight. Six mornings out of seven, she made a full sweep of the property, combing every square inch, noting any scuffed floors or dry flower beds or drapes that needed to be steamed, and even one time changing the motor in one of the gallery's ceiling fans herself. She didn't mind the work. Bell Bellevue was her job, and she was nothing if not professional. Though she could in no way have prepared herself for the grisly sight before her now. To the south and west, across a nearly five-foot-high fence where Karen was standing, the back 500 acres of the Clancy family's 157-year-old property had been leased for cane farming since before Karen was born. Over the fence line, puffs of gray smoke shot up out of the fields. The machines were out in the cane this morning. The mechanical cutters were big and wide as tractor trucks, fat, gassy beasts whose engines often disturbed the natural habitat, chasing rats and snakes and rabbits from their nests in the cane fields. And come harvest each year, the animals invariably sought out a safe and peaceful living on the grounds of Bellevue. Luis had run them out of the garden, cleared their fecal waste from his tool shed, and, on more than one occasion, trapped and bagged a specimen to take home for God knows what purpose. And now, some critter had dug up the dirt and grass along the plantation's fence line and come up with this. The body was face down, in a makeshift grave so shallow that its walls hugged the corpse as snugly as a shell, as if the dead woman at Karen's feet were on the verge of hatching, of emerging from her confinement to start this life over again. She was coated with mud top to bottom, her arms and legs tucked beneath her body, the spine in a curved position. The word fetal came to mind. Karen thought for a brief, dizzying second that she might faint. Don't touch her, she said. Don't touch a thing. Later, two cops would ask more than once how it was she didn't see her in her first inspection of the property that morning. She could have offered up any number of theories, the dirt and mud on the woman's back, the distance of 20 or 30 yards between the fence and Karen's perch behind the driver's seat of her golf cart. Even her own layman's assessment that the brain can't possibly process what it has no precedent for. But none of the words came. I don't know, she said. She watched one of the cops write this down. But it was the quarters, wasn't it? The reason she had missed that girl, the dirt and the blood. The slave village had always been a dark distraction, its craggy, crooked shadows blackening many a morning at Bellevue. 
It was the part of the job she liked the least. For Karen, the dread usually started before she even set foot on the dirt road, and today hadn't been any different. It was still dark out when she'd started to the south, not black, but cold and dim, a heavy, leaden gray. And from the time she set out this morning, she'd fretted over the task of inspecting the quarters, putting it off until the last possible second, until finally she parked the golf cart near the guest cottages, walking the rest of the way on foot. The air in the quarters was always a few degrees cooler. Even in the dead of summer, more than a few people had reported feeling a chill on this very path, a sign of spirits in their midst. Karen had been told her first day on the job. Among the staff, the ones who didn't know the first thing about her background, the plain facts of where she was born and raised, it was a perverse kind of hazing, a way to test her resolve, perhaps, to lay bets on how long she would last. That she refused to walk the quarters the first few weeks she worked here was a fact greatly whispered about. Any time she came within even a few feet of the slave village, her chest would tighten to a point no wider than a pinprick, and she felt she couldn't breathe. She would get as far as the dirt road and stop. They all gave her a week tops. But they didn't know the whole story. The truth is, avoiding the slave village was an old, old habit of hers, and one that long predated the job. Karen had grown up in Ascension Parish in the shadows of Bellevue. She had grown up with the ghost stories, childhood rants, and the rest of it. They were almost as old as the plantation itself. She had no proof, of course, that the quarters were haunted, but it is absolutely true that one morning, during her first year back, she stood at the mouth of the village, staring down the length of dirt road, and in the morning fog, the graying clapboard cottages lined up on each side, she said a short, fervent prayer, and the spell was effectively and immediately broken. The space opened itself up to her only after she privately acknowledged its power. It was the only way forward. She repeated the prayer this morning, mumbling the words softly. The wind lifted and changed direction, pushing at her back, nudging her on. She passed the bronze marker first, um, raised some three feet off the ground, and set just inside the gate to the first cabin. It dated the village to 1852, the year Monsieur and Madame Duquesne bought the land from the Mississippi all the way to the back swamp, christening it La Belle Vie. The six cabins were all that remained of what was once a thriving village of plantation workers. She wiped the words with her jacket sleeve, clearing the dew. Inside the first cabin, she paused long enough for her eyes to adjust to the darkness of the one-room shack. She gave the cabin a quick survey. Straw pallet on the floor, antique field tools hanging from rusty nails, a pine table with a tin cup and a kettle resting atop, a broom of twigs and brush, and a crudely made bench with the threadbare quilt lying on one end. It was neat and clean and ready for showing. The others were all the same, four leaning walls beneath sagging, shingled roofs, each with an open doorway but no actual door, and out front a tiny square patch of dirt and weeds where vegetables and wildflowers once grew, a historical fact which Raymond Clancy had pointedly refused to recreate, even in a nod to verisimilitude, for fear of being accused of painting too pretty a picture of slave life, of being called an apologist or worse. Raymond hated the slave cabins, hated every damn thing they stood for, he'd said, and had more than once made a fervent pitch to tear them down completely, fairly begging, knowing that this was one curatorial decision he'd have to run by his father. Raymond had tried to rope Karen in once, asking her to author a memo on company letterhead stating all the ways it would boost the plantation's bottom line if the unsightly cabins were done away with. They could build a second reception hall, he'd said, or expand parking. It was the only instance in all the time Karen had worked for Raymond, maybe even in all the years she'd known him, that she ever told him no. 
Um, one of the things I really like about this book is that I'm a mother and Karen is a mother and she reacts to these extraordinary mysterious circumstances as a mother would. Um, so this crazy thing happens in the morning she's just getting the plantation ready and there's um, this awful thing that's discovered and cops show up, everything's going on, her, her nine-year-old daughter has to be interviewed by the cops. And later, as she's getting ready for an event that night that's still going on in the main house, she discovers something on her daughter's clothes that gives her great pause, and she has to call her daughter's father. They are not together anymore. He lives in D.C., and he has another woman in his life. And that is who answers the phone when Karen um, calls Eric. Karen knew that decorum called for her to pause here, to ask Leela how she was doing, to ask after her family or inquire about her work, and ordinarily her own, her own ego wouldn't allow for any less. She had never met the woman and had always known Eric to show good judgment. It would be tacky, frankly, to be anything less than cordial. But she also thought that she had earned the right in an emergency to skip all social graces. Is Eric home, she said. There was a pause on the other end. She heard her name. Karen? Yes. There was another pause and then Leela's voice cooler than before. Yeah, he's here. Karen heard a dull thump and then silence, Leela setting down the phone. When Eric picked up the line almost a minute later, he seemed in a good humor, almost cheerful and happy to hear from her. Hey, he said, and then picking up on some ongoing conversation, a last email or a voice message she didn't remember, he said, you know, I think it's best, Karen, if you just let us go ahead and buy Morgan's plane ticket. American has a direct from New Orleans to D.C. Uh, for less than 400 right now. I'm not calling about the trip, Eric. Oh, he said, briefly clearing his throat. She wondered if Leela was listening. We have a problem, Eric. What's going on? There's been an incident here, she said, regretting the weak choice of words almost as soon as they were said. The police were here this morning. Are you okay? He asked, his voice sharp and alert. He sounded genuinely concerned, and for a brief moment, she felt a warm lump in the back of her throat. Yes. Is Morgan? Yes. Well, what is it then? They found a body here at Bellevue. It was way out on the edge of the property line by the fence in the cane fields out back. She was half buried in dirt. Someone died. Someone was killed. Out there, he said in some disbelief. Who? I don't know. It looks like it was a woman from the fields. Oh, man, Eric said. Does Morgan know? Karen was getting to that. They've talked to the whole staff trying to figure, uh, to find out if anyone saw or heard anything. I don't even know how someone got on the property, the woman or whoever it was who did this to her. I don't know, Eric, the whole thing is creepy. Well, is the plantation looking to protect itself from liability? He said, completely misunderstanding her reason for calling. I'm, I'm sure Clancy's firm can handle it, but you know, I still know some folks at Dilution Pit in the city. The detectives also spoke to Morgan. Why? She lives here, and they wanted to know what, if anything, she knew about it. She's just a kid. I was with her the whole time, Karen said. They asked her if she had seen or heard anything strange on the property in the last few days. I was right next to her when she told the cops no. She must have been terrified. She was lying. What? I found blood on one of her shirts, Eric. He was quiet, his breathing momentarily halted. I don't understand. In the laundry, on the right-hand sleeve of one of her shirts, I found blood. So you think she killed someone? He said, sounding amused and also vaguely relieved. The idea was so preposterous that it seemed to lighten things on his end. Karen said, no, I don't think she killed someone. She's left-handed. The silence returned. She <laughs> Jesus, Karen, he mumbled. Then more sternly, he said, you're not serious, are you? 
How does she get blood on her shirt, Eric? Oh, Karen, he said, his tone warm, almost playfully admonishing, treating this like the time Morgan was six months old and Karen was sure she'd stop breathing until Eric put a mirror to her nose, or when she was convinced the women at the daycare center were secretly feeding her newborn daughter bottles of whole milk. She probably just fell down and scraped herself at school or cut her hand or something. Uh -uh. It was too much blood. The words painted a picture, one that gave him pause. And you asked her about it? She's lying. How can you know that? What do you want me to say, Eric? She's my kid. Blood. Yes. All right, let me talk to her then, he said. She's home right now. Before hanging up, Karen's in the main house when she's making this call. Before hanging up, she told him she'd be waiting for his return call. Outside, the wind had picked up, snaking in ragged coils through the dark and shaking the trees against the window. The branches were like fingertips on the glass, tapping for her attention. When the phone rang again, she actually jumped. On the other end of the line, Eric repeated the same story Morgan had told her earlier, that the shirt probably was not even hers, the whole thing likely a mix-up at school, and Eric still didn't think any of it added up to much. He still had a hard time believing it was blood on his daughter's shirt or that Morgan would lie. Karen bit her tongue rather than point out the ways she felt she knew her daughter better than he did. It seemed mean-spirited. It was never his idea for Morgan to stay in Louisiana. She reminded him of the amount, the odd placement on the sleeve. I wouldn't worry about it, he said, sounding suddenly very far away. For the first time, Karen wondered what he was doing when she called, if his dinner was getting cold, if Leela had been waiting this whole time alone at the table. They're getting a search warrant, Eric. The cops? They'll be here in the morning, she said. Something shifted in Eric's demeanor. He was a trained lawyer after all, and Morgan's father. He was quiet a good, a good long while. Then he said, I honestly wouldn't worry about it, Karen. Okay, she said, because she wasn't going to worry about it. She was going to get rid of it. So. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, that's good. That hopefully you guys will all all line up. This is um. Anyway, but I, I can answer questions if you guys have any. Yes, my lovely Zoella. Thank you, Zoella, my beautiful niece. Yeah. If anybody has any questions about the book and where it all. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take a little bit weird and that you still like it. Uh, Olivia? How long did it take to write that book? It took me a long time. I actually worked on it like two years. It took a really long time. Lots of different drafts of it. Yeah. Yes, Clara? I love you, Mom. <laughs> I love you, too. Oh, sweet girl. Sweet girl. Yes, so I love. The cover, so I didn't physically make the book. I only put the word. You mean why is it like a hardback? Well, that's how they manufacture it. Enjoy it while it lasts, Soella, because I don't know that. Um, I wouldn't read the whole thing. I think it's too long. It is. Um, well, this is a, <laughs> this is a great, great group we got in the front row. Um, maybe later. It won't seem so long when you're older. Maybe it won't seem so. Long. Yes, David. Have you ever thought of writing a book for younger readers? Oh yes. Yeah, actually, I really see one of my one of the things I d deeply want deeply want to write is actually like a young adult 
book. I just haven't, one hasn't kind of presented itself, and but that's one of the things I actually would really, really, really love to do. Yeah. Yes, Richard? Um, just in terms of like the location and stuff, you said that one time you went and did you return there? Yes, I did. I did. Here's the thing. Okay, so I showed up on a plantation. It was my wedding anniversary. It was a white man and a black woman getting married. I showed up with my white husband and a Cole Miller dress and heels. I didn't understand where I was or what we were all doing here. And I didn't know if the point was, oh, look how we've healed. I mean, that's kind of like amazing. It's 2004 when I went. You know, you've got an interracial couple getting married. I'm a part. Maybe this whole thing is some sign of tremendous healing. Or my other thought was we've all lost our minds and that we're just having this party against the backdrop. And I kept wait one second, Soella. I kept waiting for the couple to acknowledge where we were, and they never did. They didn't jump a broom, they didn't make a speech. It was just a backdrop. And um, I kind of like I was really stirred up about it. So I knew I was going to write something about it, and I started reading a lot, lots of books about um, plantations, the sugar industry, reconstruction, um, all this kind of stuff. And I found one book um, that was letters that a plantation mistress wrote to her mother up north. And she was a Louisiana plantation mistress. The letters spanned right before the Civil War, through the Civil War, and right after. And I read all of her letters. In, that was about 2009. And what struck me is that I actually had more in common with the plantation mistress than I did the slaves. And I was um, stunned and not prepared for that feeling. But there was a realization of like, and I, I, I mean that both in a good way and a bad way. The good way is, oh, well, look at the breath of this that I'm now living. The bad part of it is, okay, I'm running a business out of my house. I'm trying to raise children. I'm now hiring in other women of another culture into my house to help me raise my kids. We don't necessarily have the same mother tongue. I don't know how much they like or trust me. And I, the first woman I ever hired kept calling me Mrs. And I don't think she had a, a culture understanding for a, a, like a black woman where your people come from domestics. Please stop calling me Mrs. 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 It, I don't want to be Scarlett O'Hara. So I, but I, you know, so anyway, I was so confused and I went back to Oak Alley and I stayed there. They, ha okay. So Oak Alley has the house that you can rent. They have a bed and breakfast. They have a restaurant. They uh, bottle their own mint syrup. They have, you, there's an ice cream shop. <laughs> Uh, there's a gift shop. Yes, there is ice cream there. So I knew that if I were going to write about this black woman running a plantation who basically lives out there by herself, that I had to go stay there by myself. So, and people say, oh, Galley's haunted. So I was very, I was pretty scared, but, but I, I made it. Maybe those, the ghosts, maybe the slave ghosts were like, she's all right. We're gonna, we're gonna give her a hard time. <laughs> yes, Clara. You don't even have a question, do you? Uh -huh. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wait, oh, now I remember. Quickly, honey, because everybody... Why did you tell me to not listen to it if you just, if I just listened to it right now? The, this, this was, you're right, when you, she was learning to read when I was writing this book. and was You were, honey, because I... still reading. <laughs> anyway. I don't read right now, but... Exactly. Yes, David. Have you explored your own family history in the 19th century? Mm -mm. I mean, I know some shade, like, there's one really good family historian on my mother's side, and I don't know how far that she, I'll get you in just a second, see. I'll get you in just a second. I don't know how far 
back Timby Pam has gone. I don't know how far back she's gone. On my dad's side, and my brother's here too. I mean, all I know is that we kind of come from house people. Like we come from house Negroes, and I only know that by shade of skin, um, going in, you know, going back, and then also we were landowners. And my, the, the, what got passed down as legend is that there were there was a lot of inner miscegenation, and people got some land out of it. But I, you know, um, but no, I've never really. I've never really traced it back, but when I went to Oak Alley, the one emotion that was missing was rage. And that was weird. I felt tremendous, it felt like my own homecoming, I'm not from Louisiana, but it literally felt like this is how I came into the world. This is how I as a black woman came into America. And I'm okay with that. I felt a sense of gratitude for people's labor, and I felt pride for the breath of a people and the breath of a country. So I, you know, it was, I, I give Oak Alley a really hard time, but it kind of changed, it kind of changed my life. I mean, I felt really like peaceful. When I was a little kid and, and when, you know, when they introduced things in school about slavery, it's like a, there was like a shameful feeling about it. Like I would feel really embarrassed in class that everybody was looking at me that I came from slaves, that it, it made me feel ashamed. And I don't feel that way anymore at all, at all. Not at all. Yes, Soella. How long did it take for you to write one page? It depends on what day it was. <laughs> it does. It really does. Some days I can write lots of pages, but some days... Sundays? Were you at my house when it happened? No. If you were not at my house, I probably could write a page in a short amount of time. <laughs> How about 10 hours? No, no, shorter than that, shorter than that. Anyway, does anybody go? Yes, Gar. Uh, when you were doing your research, did you get any kind of a pushback, or, or was everybody really more than happy to talk to you? I wonder if you encountered any like, suspicion in terms of your motives and that kind of thing. Mm -mm, because I didn't really tell Oak Alley what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't really tell them what I was doing. I mean, the person I did explain what I was doing to is a guy named Herman Wagaspak who runs the American Sugar Cane League. And so he kind of, he was more than willing to like take, the one thing is that his fiance, when we were supposed to spend a day together, she parked herself, boom, in the middle of that cab of the pickup truck. She was right between me and Herman. And Herman. She was not having us ride around in the country without her sitting right there. And I wasn't mad at her. It was fine. We, it was fine. So he, I, he was really open and honest. But since the book came out, you know, we, I, I kind of approached Ogat. First of all, they, I came up on a really fast Google alert for them. And they were like, oh, well, hi. Um, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about seems like dated and da, da, da. And then we tried to reach out to them to say maybe we, there's a publicity matchup here. And he said, well, I just need to see the book. The guy, Gary Dolphin, who runs, um, who runs the, the media stuff for the plantation. And he got halfway through my book and wrote and said, well, I just don't see anything here that has anything to do with Oak Alley. So I don't know what, what kind of publicity thing you could be talking about. And then we never heard. We never heard from him since. I mean, it would be my hope that they would, in some, to some degree, embrace it. Um, they have a bookshop there, and it is everything from like cookbooks to like mammy keychains to like serious historical texts from LSU. So I would hope that they would embrace. No, I mean I could ask him, but I'm shy. I'm shy. I'm a little shy. I don't know if he's mad. I don't know. I'm a little shy. Yes, my love. Is the cutting season a real season? That is a very good question. You know what it refers to? It um, when um, sugar cane is planted in the summer. Do you know sugar cane? Sugar cane. Okay, sugar cane is planted in the summer, 
and then it's harvested uh, October through January. And when they they used to cut it all by hand, and they would call it the cutting season when it was time to harvest the sugar cane. And so that was the name. That's why I chose it. Very good question. One second. Anyway, anything else? I mean, otherwise, I'm. This was a, a been a true. Oh yes. I'm actually am reading your first book, Blackwater Rising, and I love it. And I, I noticed yeah, you have your, I'm going to now put the post-its, <laughs> I like to know. Um, but I noticed that there's a way that you weave in information about African Americans. You talk about Jim Crow, what it was like for Jay's dad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I wonder, is there anything that you want people to know about, about, about yes. history or African Americans? You know what I most want to know? It, want people to know? The, the through line that I see or the thing that drives me is um, the idea of psychological freedom. Um, that I don't want m my ancestors to have done all of the things that they did. It's not enough to, you know, eat at a lunch counter. It's not even really enough to vote. It, all that stuff is necessary. But if I were somehow still in shackled in my head, if I were not psychologically free, then I am daily doing them a disservice. That my way of honoring um, people's lives, uh, people who lost their lives, their labor, their love, and, and the awful stuff that they had to go through, is that I really show up in my life really free, as free as I can be. And my that is really my hope. And, and with this book in particular, I was wrestling with the question of which parts of our history is it dangerous to let go of? And which parts might we do well to not hold on to so closely so that we might go forward. Um, I feel very, very strongly that um, we've been kind of as a nation stuck in a script about race, um, where black always falls as the oppressed and white always falls as the oppressor. And it's a very familiar script that we've been hanging out in for hundreds of years. And I, and, and I, I know people who want to hold on to it and want to consistently see that. I don't know how we go forward holding on to those fixed identities about ourselves. And one of the most powerful scenes in the book to me is at the very, very end where you have Karen standing in a room with uh, Raymond Clancy. And he, uh, Karen is the, um, what are you looking Oh, no, no, it is. I'm not going to get No, um, but, um, you know, here she is the um, descendant of slaves. Here he is the descendant of slave owners. They are both standing with baggage they didn't ask for. Neither of them asked for their history. So we can keep holding on to it really tight, but there has to become a point at which we meet each other where we are now. That's my hope. That's my hope. Yeah. I think that's very good. Yeah. That's my hope. Yeah. So thank you guys. Oh, unless you have something else. Yeah. No. I was just going to ask, I mean, in addition to writing a really smart book about um, murder and race and slavery, which of course accounts for the large turnout of, of children tonight. <laughs> 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 really good mystery now. <laughs> Uh, is this something you grew up on? Are you, are you proud of your place in the tradition? Of, of, of I mean, I, I don't, I, don't it feels super, super unconscious. I mean, it just, it's kind of just my whole zone. I mean, I will say as a writer that it keeps me honest because I can't get didactic and I can't go off on big. Because if you just like left a body somewhere, you have to like <laughs> figure out what happened to it. And so it's, it kind of keeps me from 
you know, making big longs. It keep, I, I don't. It, it, maybe for other people it's it's romance, or for other people it's something else. But it keeps me two feet on in the dirt of the scene, or in the. It just keeps me grounded in a way. But I also just like. I mean, as my husband can attest, I like watching Dateline and 2020. I mean, I just am fascinated by why in the world people do the things that they do. And also that I might know, I don't talk about this a lot, but I will let it, I'll let it out. I actually lived with, um, in college, my college roommate was a compulsive liar. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Um, she, but a tragic figure, I mean, a real tragic figure. Basically, I mean, it's, it is its own YA novel because we were in college together. She basically created a stalker that didn't exist. And she was so manipulative that she started and built this story actually over like 18 months so that when she built it up to that this person was following her, that he, there were letters coming to her boyfriend. Um, she, actually, she actually cut herself at one point and made a big thing about he had found, I mean, I'll stop. Living with somebody who looks you in the eye and lies like that, there, there's, there's a sense that I never want to go through that ever again. And I don't know, maybe playing out in these stories is my way of figuring out um, could I, you know, spot a bad person again if, because I try and bury them in the book. And so, although I spoke at Brixton Prison in London, and one of the prisoners was like, oh, I, I knew who did it. And he was right. And I don't know if that's because he's like a criminal, but he was like, oh, I completely, completely knew who did it. And he was right, so. <laughs> anyway. anyway, yes, Dad. And I just want to say, there's your novel. Right? <laughs> you know that story, too. You do know that story. I cannot wait for you to write it's it. kind of a crazy. It's kind of a crazy. <laughs> no, and we approached it very much like college kids, so she was just really slick but about the way that she did it. And yeah, there are kids here, so I'll leave it at that. But um, yes, we were at Oak Alley. You were really. Yes, that was the first time I ever had a mint julep. <laughs> 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 it's a it's a quirky, quirky, quirky yeah, place. Yeah, they dress the ladies up as mammies. When I came to the wedding, there were, and then somebody just reminded me, they were handing out pralines, and they were dressed as mammies, and they opened the door for you. And so me and the, me and the black guy in the band, because I, um, we, God, there's nothing I can say around my children. Uh, we used to step outside for a breath of fresh air. And um, he and I were both like, oh, are they going to make us wash dishes before the night is over? We were like, we're going to pour champagne for our ancestors. I mean, we were trying to keep a sense of humor about it because it's completely absurd. Um, so I tried to have fun with the absurdity of it, but, but add in something underneath. You know, I was so ambivalent about going, and I was with her and her husband. We were driving on these back Louise and I'd never been. I'm not from the South. And I thought, ooh, it's deliverance. <laughs> If if I had not been invited to that wedding, no, no, you don't want any of that. And we went in stores and he'd ask where, remember that place we stayed? No one knew where it was, and I said, oh. No, 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 you don't, you don't want, no, you don't want to get lost over there. And I, I, you know, I, if if that wedding hadn't happened, I think I would have gone my whole life. Like, I know what a plantation is. I don't need to go see it. I won't even eat at soup plantation. I don't want anything to do with the plantation. I just. So I'm kind of glad I was forced to <laughs> to do it to do it anyway. Anyway, I'll sign books and thank you guys. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.